The opinions expressed on Tomahawk Talk do not represent that of WVFS Tallahassee. A good evening to you and how you be. William Haynes here, you there at 7 o'clock on this Monday night. We're recording this one a little bit in advance, but obviously listening to this live on 89.7 WVFS, Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State. I'm your host, as I said, William Haynes. We have our co-host back this week, Jackson Bakich, our producer on the show as well this week, Jack Oliaro. And before we get into introductions, just want to throw out a shout out as well to the people that held the show down last week. Myself and Jackson were out of that one because we had an in-studio, in-person show. Jack was up there. Uh, as he so aptly put on the show title, you know, Coco for Coco hosts, as it was Jack joined by uh, alumni Sebastian Angeliano and uh, one of our leadership members, Amanda Golson, was on the show to round out that one. It was a fantastic show. They had all kinds of great stuff. And we've got uh, another great show lined up for this week as well, guys. But before we head to that, I know both of you are, are kind of situated in the uh, central Florida area. And speaking of that, the Orlando Magic this week. They won the first overall pick in this upcoming draft. Are you guys excited? I'm elated. I could not be more jubilant. I could not be more uh, – I, I need a thesaurus, honestly. I, I, I'm just hung over the moon. Um, I think there are three really good players. Um, it, in the past, the Magic have been just outside the cusp of getting one of those good players. I, I believe the year that Joel Embiid was um, getting drafted, the Magic were drafted like fourth. And there was three good players that year, and they were, dra- they were drafted fourth. And um, they've, gen- they've been just outside that cusp of being able to get some good players. And they've had some solid years. They have a good culture in Orlando. So they've been in draft lottery limbo. And so to finally get that number one pick, whether they're going to choose – the best player in the draft, according to experts um, or not, just to be able to have that leverage, uh, whether they want to trade back or not. It's just so, uh, it's just so valuable. And so as a Magic fan, it is, it is very exciting and I hope they don't screw it up. So either of you guys jump in here, what, uh, I know we're still early. The combine hasn't even happened yet. Um, but is it, is it a top heavy draft? Is there a consensus number one overall? Is it maybe a group of three who are the magic looking at maybe taking and what would your preference be? I definitely don't think there's a, a true number one as there has been in previous years. Um, it seems like you could either go with uh, Chet Holmgren, uh, Holmgren rather, uh, Jabari Parker, or my pick, which be, would be Paolo Bancaro, probably because we actually saw uh, eyes on him this er, this year when he came to Tallahassee. But um, there really isn't a bad choice at the top. And uh, even if the Magic had a lower pick and for other teams, there's plenty of other um, choices throughout really the entire first round. I would uh, I would go looking at Paolo Boncaro. Uh, he seems to be um, 
the jack of all trades. He can sort of do it all. He can get inside the paint and put up what he needs to, and then really hit from three, which is kind of something the magic could use um, and, and really rebuild with a huge uh, heavy lineup there. But there's your, their, your local flavorsome Orlando magic talk uh, without further ado, the headlining act of tonight's show. And it is, um, a real interesting one on Wednesday, this past Wednesday night, uh, Alabama football head coach, Nick Saban spoke, uh, at an event. It was the 2022 world games, which is held in Birmingham, Alabama. It's basically just, uh, kind of an international Olympic type event for sports that aren't included in the Olympics. So he was there in Birmingham. There was a lot of, uh, wealthy people that might potentially be Alabama donors that he was trying to get the ears of. He talked for about an hour and there was a seven minute clip that surfaced on YouTube. That was him essentially going on kind of a tirade about the current state of name image likeness NIL for short uh, in college football, which allows players to, to profit off of, as I said, their name image and likeness uh, some, some major things from those seven minutes that, that really uh, went national as far as news uh, Saban started off. He thinks NIL is great for allowing players to quote, make opportunities for themselves, kind of meaning that it's players get to school and they align their own deals. He encourages his players to get their own agents and kind of handle that away from the team. But he also thinks it's being misused by schools using NIL as a, as a basically a funnel to pay players. Uh, he talked about private collective funds that all schools have. Florida State has one. I think they have a couple now, but uh, Rising Sphere was the main one. Alabama has one. Uh, A&M, Miami, all these big schools have funds like this that he was talking about of uh, an organization that's a third party, not with the university, but boosters that uh, put money into it. And it's essentially to get players uh, some NIL deals. He went on to say, and this is where it gets interesting. He said that Texas A&M bought every player on their team and uh, we, meaning Alabama, didn't buy one. This comes off the heels of uh, A&M having the number one recruiting class in the country. Alabama also had some top prospects taken away from schools like USC uh, and Texas, who, who put a lot of money into NIL. So clearly he's frustrated about missing out on some big players. And then he went on to say, uh, and, and really calling people out directly, he said Jackson State paid $1 million for a D1 player, meaning Travis Hunter, who I'm sure you're familiar with. He said it was in the paper everyone was bragging about it. So Saban, essentially, he's like, it's all out in the open. This is wrong. This needs to change. And they called some people out that they weren't too happy about it. That was Wednesday night. Uh, Texas A&M head football coach Jimbo Fisher, formerly here in Tallahassee, he called the presser for the very next day, Thursday morning, and uh, he did not hold anything back. He Opened uh, the, the presser, it lasted about 10 minutes. He said he called Saban's accusations despicable. He used that word a few times. Uh, he says Saban is a narcissist and that he thinks he's a god. Uh, he essentially accuses Saban of his own violations. He said, quote, dig into his past and anyone who's worked with him saying that Saban is, does not uh, have a, uh, a house uh, without glass in that regard as far as paying players uh, to come to school. Jimbo went on to say uh, really his main defense in the press conference is that he or his players never broke Texas NIL state laws that he kept harping back to that, that Saban had somehow insinuated that they were breaking laws by paying guys to come to school directly. Uh, Jimbo said that that was not the case. And he, he called for some government interference, equal rules, um, because uh, it is a state by state basis as far as kind of what is allowed and what isn't. But he said that we're in the clear from a legal sense. And then the, the final kind of part of this triad in the story, Deion Sanders, who we know 
uh, in Tallahassee as well. He's the head coach at Jackson State University and HBCU. Uh, he responded Thursday as well. He tweeted out in the morning that he'll, quote, address the lie Coach Saban told. And then he went on to say this. We as a people don't have to pay our people to play with our people. So kind of leaving some room for, for understanding. And I'll leave you to, to kind of read between the lines on that. Uh, he went on to uh, do an article for Anscape, which is the new uh, title of the, the ESPN publication, The Undefeated. And in that article, he said that Saban tried to call him, but he isn't interested in having a private conversation. Saban attacked him publicly, and any conversation he has with Nick will be public. He said he respects Coach Saban, but uh, said Saban took a wrong turn and he kind of wanted to put him in his place. And, and then some other interesting notes from that article Dion, before going to Jackson State, he covered the drafts for the NFL Network. He coached the All-American game. So he's been around college prospects, many of which went to Alabama. And he said about that, he said, they forgot I know who's been bringing the bag and dropping it off. I'm not the one you want to play with when it comes to all this stuff. Uh, he disputed that uh, their top prospects that they got in, Travis Hunter and Kevin Coleman, both of whom uh, were in serious consideration to go to Florida State. He said he disputed that they make big money. Uh, Hunter currently has two deals and two pending. The total of those four valued under $250,000. So disputing that, uh, Saban claimed that he made a million dollars on some kind of deal with Barstool uh, that, that uh, reports have disputed. And then he said on the podcast, I am athlete, that he is he was used as a pawn uh, for Saban to get more money. Uh, so the bottom line is this. It's three guys telling three pretty different stories. Uh, Saban, he fears the system of teams buying players, similar to what we see kind of in the MLB with the haves and the have-nots as far as monetary is concerned. And then Jimbo claims he's within the law. He's doing nothing wrong. And then Deion Sanders, of course, uh, saying that players are coming to him for reasons other than money, that they're coming to uh, not a Power 5, not a D1, but an HBCU uh, because they want to uh, make impacts in other ways. So I'll throw this out to you guys uh, as we start this conversation off. This is a, a mo monumental story in college football. There's probably ramifications to come, but what do you guys make from this as a whole? Well, when it comes to NIL, there's a lot, it seems like there's a lot of gray area. It seems like there was a lot of unintended consequences of these new rules. And that's bound to happen. It always happens whenever, um, the entire landscape, the, the entire structure of, of rules um, are completely changed. And in, in a stratosphere like college football, uh, there was bound to be gray area, excuse me, gray area, and there's bound to be some, you know, bending of the rules. Um, but I, I think this is what I think happened, honestly. I, I think Jimbo Fisher heard or read or saw Saban's comments. And I think he, he looked at them denotatively and, and um, he, I don't think he understood the connotation. I, I, I think if you, if you read what Saban says and not hear it, um, it's, he says that Texas A&M bought their players. Obviously that's illegal. The Texas A&M itself cannot pay money for, to, for players to play at their school. That is, as we all know, is illegal. The, the school themselves cannot. Um, I, I think what Saban was insinuating is that, uh, you know, they, they abused, and, and I, I say that not necessarily in a negative connotation, but, 
you know, they, they used NIL to such an extent that they bought all their players. And I say that in quotations. Um, and so I, I think what Saban's trying to say is that Texas A&M encouraged NIL so much to the point where uh, it just became a money thing. And I, I think that's what Saban is trying to say. Um, do, is it possible that Saban has had some missteps in the past? 100%. 100%. I mean, it, I wouldn't be surprised if every single Division One head coach has had a recruiting violation that no one has heard of. So um, I'll leave it at that. That's an interesting angle in, in kind of the whole NIL thing as a whole, because before this, when players couldn't do anything, they couldn't even sign autographs for money. It was very, you know, Reggie Bush had to give his Heisman Trophy back for some like pretty small stuff in the grand scheme of things. And we're in this world now where it's pretty much all completely legal. It's all within NCAA rules to say, hey, you know, you come to the school, we have a we have a we have a booster, a donor that owns a car dealership and he'll give you a car. You know, if you come here to do commercials for him and it's all, you know, uh, over the table, it's not under the table dealings that we've seen. And sure, there is a great possibility that coaches like Saban before NIL were doing those under the table deals. But now that it's over the table and no one has to hide it anymore. I think it is becoming that arms race. Texas A&M is one of the richest schools in the country as far as money they can provide to football. Texas, the same. USC, now the same, especially now Oklahoma. that Lincoln Riley is there. Oklahoma and, and, and Alabama, not that they don't have money, but maybe they don't have that much money. And Saban can no longer rely on his seven championships. You know, his most NFL players drafted, he said that, you know, his players since 2010 have made like two or $3 billion dollars. Uh, combined in the NFL so he can no longer lean on that as much because no matter what if A&M is offering more money these five stars may be going there and I think that's what he's most frustrated about and and not only that but college football naturally is cyclical um and, and obviously Alabama has had tremendous success and they've kind of uh negated that cyclical uh theory that I just, you know, claimed, but naturally college football is cyclical because, you know, there's a re at some point, those eight and four teams, those nine and three teams, those 10 and two teams become national champions. And it's because they have to have recruiting classes that are better than what their season produces because, or their season expects you to have in relation to the recruiting class, because, uh, Five stars, four stars, these kids, they want playing time. So if every single five-star in the country is going to Alabama or Clemson or USC, well, USC is not a great example, or Ohio State, um, eventually some of those five and fours and those three stars, they're not getting playing time if they all go to the same school or the same three or four schools. So there's going to be times where these schools like Texas A&M or Kentucky or – you know, schools that are on the rise, schools that are, you know, producing eight and four, nine and three, 10 and two year seasons, you know, they're, they're projecting up, but they're still going to have playing time for those big recruits. And Kentucky may have been an interesting, I don't know, I, I, I'm a little biased. I like Kentucky, they're one of my teams, but, uh, you know, you just think about teams that are on the rise, they're going to get some good recruits. And granted, Texas A&M had the greatest recruiting class ever 
that that that's not um that's not unknown but you know that it's going to happen nick saban's going to be out recruited sometimes and i think i to me it sounded like he was he was just mad that he didn't win that's what it sounds like to me and that was what uh, yeah, Deion Sanders and, and kind of Jimbo as well had kind of uh, accused him of that. Look, he was just he said that trying to get a rise out of people. And because his audience were people that could potentially be giving him money. I think it's it's funny that Saban can be calling out the system while also playing the game at the very same time that and saying that he's trying to get more money. Uh, you mentioned Jackson about players going to other schools and Saban had an interesting little note about that as well as he kind of looks to the future and what this NIL era will be defined by. He was saying that um, and, and boosters, people with a lot of money, especially in college football can be very proud. And he said, look, if there's a booster that, that single-handedly brings a five-star to our school and he's riding into the stadium, all high and mighty telling all his friends that he got this player to come and he watches that player sit on the bench for the year and then transfer after that, that donor supposedly did hundreds of thousands, maybe even a million dollars to get that player there, and he leaves anyway, then you're getting into a situation where people that have no really affiliation with the football program are like, well, I want my money back. Why wasn't this guy playing? Why did he transfer? And so I think Saban is right in saying that. It is an incredibly dangerous game to play. Yeah, and – I don't know. I, I see both sides of the argument. I, I from Saban's perspective, you know, it, it actually I'll start with Jimbo's perspective from, from Jimbo's perspective. It seemed like Saban was calling him a cheater. And I, I really do think Saban was just saying, Hey, either this is a problem as a whole or, you know, look, look at Jimbo or look at some of these schools. They're not doing that or they're doing that. We don't, we're not doing that. Um, and what I, what I mean by that in quotation is spending an inexorbitant amount of money. Um, but at the same time, Jimbo saying, well, we didn't spend that. That's NIL. That's, that's people outside the program. That is something, you know, that, we're affiliated with, but we don't necessarily control. And so I, I don't know. I, I do think it's kind of like being in a meeting and saying we need to find a balance. It's the most cliche thing you can think of, but I, I do think there needs to be some sort of, like Jimbo was saying, there needs to be some sort of legislation across the board, uh, perhaps federally. Uh, so we're all on the same page. We all know what's going on. But like, like Steve Spurrier just came out and said a few days or, or what, less than 24 hours ago. Um, this is what he said in quotation. Uh, he said, did Nick Saban say something that wasn't true? And I, I agree with, with Spurrier. Saban just said, hey, they, they're spending a lot of money through NIL. And uh, I really do think Jimbo just took it the wrong way. So I don't yeah, know. I think, yeah, in that regard, the more we dig into it, I think Saban made the mistake. If, if it, maybe it's not a mistake that he called people out on purpose. He went back and tried to backtrack it and apologize. And we'll see. I mean, there's a, 
there's a, a feud as hot as ever between Jimbo and, and Saban now, and you know ESPN can play it up all they want. Jack, something interesting I wanted to kind of ask you to bring you into this discussion. Saban brought up um, what he called uh, non non revenue sports, which he's you know he said women's tennis and golf and baseball and, and sports that aren't bringing in the university millions of dollars, but those athletes are as eligible to make NIL money as any football player is. And I think he, as much as he didn't say it, I think he kind of hinted at it that um, if it becomes a, an arms race with football, which is who has more millions to give to football players, it, it does kind of defeat the purpose of some of these, what he called non-revenue sports and those athletes getting NIL money. It does. And around the turn of COVID, and it was really just when NIL was becoming sort of uh, growing as a whole and things were becoming more legal, it opens way too many doors. Um, first off, it devalues your university. Um, not exactly on the face value, but in terms of what um, your school stands for and what your athletic, like, is there really a divide or is there not? Um, going to, we, we all attend Florida State University. Um, the first thing isn't really the school, it's generally the football team. So I think the question is, when does there become a divide? Because it seems inevitable because we can't keep going in this um, track where it just, the, the more money that comes in, it just like you said, becomes an unbearable arms race that gives teams who, you know, can't afford it literally just no shot at all. It's just like uh, Jackson was pointing out earlier, there has to be some sort of legislation to, um, to instate on a federal level, not state level, because if you, as this has been on a state level, this has already gotten out of hand with uh, states like Texas and California, those um, really bigger states, um, really gravitating and bringing in those bigger players, which is not fair to states of um, lower importance. Um, I wanted to say like states like Notre Dame, or I'm sorry, a state like Indiana and a team like Notre Dame who has that prestige, um, not, but the state doesn't. And I don't think that's fair that teams have to work around and have to play politics with state legislatures and um, stuff like that, just so that they could have a fighting chance on a nationally fought um, competition. Um, that is a, that is a great point you, that you bring up. It's like, there's going to be teams as, as this NIL stuff gets worse and worse that they're like, we can't win because our state won't let us pay players like other States can. And that is, is so ridiculous. Guys like Jimbo had brought up, a an antitrust from the federal government. We've seen that in baseball be kind of a dangerous thing because once you let them to, to run wild, I mean, minor leagues in baseball, they don't even pay their players like the federally mandated minimum wage because of that antitrust. So it is it is going to be interesting to see how far, how much rope the government would maybe give them to get kind of a united thing. And um, another thing that that stands out in a conversation like this is college football can't even get on the same page about postseason, about how many teams will be in the playoff conferences. Is the whole system going to blow up, let alone a, a state and, and federal laws concerning NIL. So it's the, the landscape that we're in. This is like one more problem um, to, to what has already been like kind of an insurmountable issue. And it's sort of been a case of more money, more problems. I mean, the more money that's been pumped into this sport and I'm going to zero in specifically on the Southeast region, the more money that's come in, the more things have gotten out of hand. Um, it's become a real, it's become a real problem because how could, a team, I'm going to throw, let, let's say a team, uh, Boise State and Idaho. They should have as much of a chance on a nationally fought, it's a nationally fought competition. How could they compete? 
when they're in a state such as Idaho, and let's say, I don't know Idaho's state, um, I don't know what their places are on IL, but I assume um, lesser teams and lesser states don't have as much uh, room, wiggle room. Um, how do they have a chance to do anything, make a dent? Go, maybe, this could, this starts out as a, a top level where teams like Bama, A&M, and you know, other national contenders are um, you know, banging heads on this issue, but this also leaks down to the very bottom to um, schools such as Jackson State, which is becoming a big issue. And really all of college football is sort of in, not danger, but it's losing its, um, losing its what its core values are. And you can make the argument that, well, the core values are having under the table paying and doing all these shady things that, you know, is generally, is generally known, but never discussed. Um, but it's, it's, it's weird seeing a sport that I, I guess that, you know, all of us have fallen in love with um, at many different levels, um, just sort of fall into an era like it is now where it really seems like there's no, there's no moral answer. The moral answer would be, Hey, everybody is on a fair trading ground, but then it devalues the, the sport. Um, how could teams like Alabama be playing on the same level as a team like San Diego state? That's not fair to what Alabama's built or teams like, you know, Florida state or teams with that, that prestige. It just doesn't seem like there's no right answer. And this could be a question that develops further and further to questions where it just seems like the sport's going to kind of blow itself up out of hand. I, I, I have a question for, for both of y'all though. Based on what Nick Saban said, mm -hmm. do you think he was accusing Deion Sanders and Jimbo Fisher of cheating? I don't think he was accusing them of cheating. I think he, he had a problem with the rules. I don't think as much as Jimbo said otherwise, I don't think he accused the Jimbo of playing outside the rules. I think he used Jimbo as an example to show why the rule is bad. Yeah, I would agree. However, I, I would agree, or excuse me, I would say I think he, he misspoke or lied about the Deion Sanders million to, to Jackson Hunter situation. That was never confirmed. I don't know if he was referring to the million dollars from Barstool. Uh, that was reported allegedly as soon as, you know, in December, as soon as that came out. Um, I think there's an argument there that he misspoke entirely. Uh, but I agree with you, William. I, I think he did not accuse anybody of cheating. I don't think he accused anybody of breaking the rules. And that's why I think Jimbo's response was unwarranted. Um, but Jack, what do you think? You can't, I, it goes back to the state thing. How can, it, it, it can be, the argument can be made both ways. Jimbo is playing within the rules of his state, potentially. Um, I don't know the Alabama rules, uh, the state of Alabama rules. They could be different, but it seems as though Texas has the most uh, freedom you could use. And that's really, that's been kind of exposed. Uh, I don't think maybe Nick Saban wasn't targeting him, but maybe just, again, like you said, used him as an example and use his program as an example to show why it's wrong that, you know, certain states have certain advantages and something along those lines. One thing I will say, though, about uh, Saban pointing fingers and saying breaking the law, you, Brent, you, you mentioned that the Alabama NIL laws, 
this was big in Florida State circles on signing day when Travis Hunter threw the, the, the garnet and gold hat to the side and picked up the Jackson State hat that there were some people in Florida State circles that were digging into it. And if the barstool thing w- was real, which at this point it looks like it might not be, that that had broken a couple of the Mississippi State NIL laws, the first being that no one under the age of 18, um, and because I, I, I want to say he was 17 at the time that could accept any kind of NIL deal. And the other one was you can't accept admission to university based on a pre-standing NIL deal. Um, so if, if that was the case, that was something that was going to be looked into. But at this point, we may say no. Um, and that's it is kind of interesting how that got brought to the forefront this week, because Travis Hunter was a, a thing that Florida State people were raw about. That was a big deal. And now Dion is, is kind of having to answer for it a little bit. Yeah, I, I, you know, we talk about Deion Sanders. We talk about, you know, that whole situation. I, I think Travis Hunter, I, th- I think initially um, Florida State fans were so quick to jump on the whole Barstool story just because it was, you know, a way for them to, to rationalize. And here I am wearing a Florida State shirt, but. You know, it, it was a way for them, and then myself included, those first few weeks, uh, it was a way for us to rationalize him not going to Florida State. And, uh, you know, I think the way it came down to it, Florida State lost. Mike Norvell in this situation lost. The recruiting team lost. Uh, they lost to Deion Sanders. They lost to the greatest, possibly the greatest quarterback, cornerback, excuse me, in NFL history, one of the greatest athletes in NFL history. Um, they lost and there's no other way to put it Uh, because even let's say even if that that bar and the barstool deal went through let's say it went through let's say it was 100% illegal they could have done it at Florida State too why couldn't they have done it at Florida State not necessarily barstool uh, related but and I what think was stopping Florida State from from giving Travis Hunter a, a decent NIL deal. And I think that's why people were upset, because you saw the rising spear and all these boosters saying, hey, you know, in this new NIL world, if we want to compete with the big boys, we need your money. And the fact that they lost out on the consensus number one prospect in the entire country was like, oh, man. And then that the report came out that it was money based. That made people even more upset. And I think so we see in our own backyard kind of the evils of what NIL is, which is our, our Darius Mims was another example that it's like, we almost feel like we've lost a bidding war every time we don't get a big name. Yeah. 100%. And uh, you know, who knows, who knows how this thing is going to turn out. Um, all I know is October 8th, Alabama and Texas <laughs> A&M, that should be one hell of a game. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I do think, as much as Florida State fans don't want to admit it, I do think Jimbo Fisher has that program on the right track. I think, you know, that win against Alabama last year uh, speaks volumes. Um, and building a program takes time. I, I, I We, uh, you know, Florida State fans look back, and I think college football fans in general, they, they look back and they, and they look at programs that change coaches – and if there's a lot of success and then a coach moves on and another coach comes in, um, that winning culture is already there. And, and people look at those programs and they, 
And then they look at a program like Florida State and they see coaching changes and they expect just because there's a new coach, they expect, you know, winning immediately. And um, football is not like international football or soccer, whatever you want to call it. Um, a change in tactics, a change in formation uh, does not. Um, and you can watch Ted Lasso and you might disagree with me, but uh, changing managers has a much bigger effect immediately than it does uh, compared to a, to a college football team. But in the long term, it's, it's the opposite. It flipped. So, you know, you know, Jimbo Fisher took over a program that was mediocre and, and steadily he's getting it to where they want to be. And with this recruiting class, I think they have a chance to be real national contenders uh, in the next, you know, one to two years. NIL has certainly played into their hands. I mentioned that they have probably the biggest collection of boosters with big money and um, they're using it to their advantage in this landscape. Jimbo is also, I think, one of, if not the highest paid coach in college football. So they are rolling and the more success they have, potentially the more fingers are going to be pointed. They beat Alabama in College Station a season ago in a game where I thought Alabama got kind of beat up up front. So we'll see, as Jackson said, October 8th is this year's installment of what has now become a, a pretty fierce rivalry. So great conversation. We'll cut it off here uh, for the first half of the show. When we return, FSU baseball, FSU softball, NBA and NHL playoffs don't go anywhere. And we welcome you back to Tomahawk Talk on this Monday night, second half of the show after some great NIL discussion. We'll start coming out of the break with some FSU baseball. As we speak on a Saturday, they are down in Chapel Hill 3-0. Bryce Hubbard gave up a home run, so if that result ends up holding, they'll be looking at an 0-4 week, which is certainly disappointing after the week they were coming off of. Uh, previously, as it stands now, they followed that thrilling 4-1 week with two over Jackson uh, two, other, two over Jacksonville and two of three from the number six team in the land, the Miami Hurricanes, with currently what is now an O and three week. They came into the week in the RPI rankings at 17. UF, who they played on Tuesday, was 16. UNC, who they're playing this weekend, is 23. So all some good opponents as they're vying for potentially hosting a regional guys. We'll start with the Tuesday game at UF and you can just jump in on whatever, you've, whatever you watch, whatever you've got. Uh, Wyatt Langford, the star for UF hit a couple of home runs in his first two at bats to power them uh, through most of that games. There was some big innings early FSU put up a three run inning in the second UF with a four run inning in the third, they were gridlocked at five runs apiece until the ninth when Sterling Thompson walked it off with a two run Homer Jackson Bowmeister. Uh, gave up four runs and two and two thirds to start. They kind of went with uh, Jackson, as you mentioned, kind of an opener. They was followed by Scalero for four and a third. And then Davis Hare got the loss, although it was Armstrong who gave up the home run. And with that victory in Gainesville, UF wins the season series two games to one. So a disappointing start to the week for them on Tuesday. Yeah. And it seems like these last couple of days and, and throughout the week, uh, 
Florida State's losing on the long ball. And uh, home runs left and right. And home runs, just from personal experience, um, they're not always indicative of, of how you are pitching as a staff. Um, there's been plenty of times I, I would throw a, you know, if I was, you know, when I was throwing back in my day, uh, you know, slinging the rock. Um, there were plenty of times, not that I gave up home runs a lot, but there have been plenty of times where I, I you know, <laughs> whether this was <laughs> Jack's giving me a funny look. There have been plenty of times, whether it was it was me on the mound or someone else on the mound, they would have a great game or I would have a great game throwing, but they made one mistake that cost you three runs. I remember the very first time I pitched on the varsity level, uh, I came in in relief. And I, I pitched a great, I pitched a great game. I had a great outing, but I left one changeup up against the uh, the lefty cleanup hitter who, who took it, you know, uh, 325 over the right field fence. So um, that happens. But when you make giving up home runs a uh, when that becomes a habit, it's it's not a uh, not a respectable outcome and and both of those uh, home runs for white Langford, they were both fastballs up in the zone kind of low 90 so i think pitch election certainly plays into that as well uh, but you're right that the home runs have killed them they've been playing some potent offenses lately but the point is all still the same when you're walking guys errors all over the field and you throw in the home runs it doesn't matter how good this lineup is which in fact the lineup has been doing pretty good despite currently through five shutout on saturday but uh, they were great against Miami. They were great in Gainesville. Uh, they they even were good in the first couple games in Chapel Hill, and that'll lead us into the Thursday game with everything pushed back a day with the ACC tournament coming up. On Thursday, it was a 7-5 to five loss, so they repeat the score this time at UNC. The, the Tar Heels scored four runs in the first off of Carson Montgomery, who got the start. He ended up going only three innings in that game. Connor, Connor Whitaker pitched four shutout to follow as Florida State slowly climbed back into the game. Logan Lacey, Jaime Ferrer, and James Tibbs all homered uh, as FSU was leading five to four after eight innings, and that's where things fell apart. After getting out of a bases-loaded jam in the eighth, Wyatt Cruel gives up a three-run homer in the ninth for his first loss of the season. Previously, he was 5-0, and oh, so um, they had uh, they were at least tied for a while in Gainesville. They had the lead in Chapel Hill, and, and once again, uh, 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 defeat from the jaws of victory, if you will. And and you talk about in that bottom of the ninth, Crowell, he, he gets – they were very hard hit. They, they weren't dribblers. They weren't routine plays. But he gets two ground balls there uh, in between the third baseman and the short side. I mean, it was third baseman's ball. But um, he gets he gets two ground balls to the left side, and uh, they had both opportunities to end that, end that inning, and they couldn't get out of it. And uh, next thing you know, when, when you give teams, you know, players that are on scholarship too – when you give them opportunities and you give them extra outs, you give them extra opportunities at the plate, uh, they'll make you pay. And that's, that's exactly what happened there on Thursday. And then leading into the Friday game, this one was uh, more disappointing in the, the score differential. Ten to four, the loss on Friday. Uh, Brock Mathis for the Knowles homer to make it four to three, uh, a one-run deficit um, in the seventh inning. 
at that point, the Tar Heels ran away with it with a grand slam in the eighth. Parker Messick started that game in one of his more disappointing starts. I mean, six innings, four runs on seven hits is not bad, but for him, certainly not the standard. Struck out only four and walked two, so his uh, goal of having more starts than walks probably gets thrown out the window with two bases on balls. He lost his fourth game of the year. He's now six and four with the record. Uh, Dylan Simmons struggles continue. He gave up the grand slam. His ERA is up to 988. Uh, so he has not been very good out of the bullpen. The defense committed three errors in that game. Probably could have been four or five, depending on how the stats went down. There was a comebacker to the mound that one of the pitchers struggled with and just some routine ground balls. And um, he threw the grand slam in there as well. And that gave uh, UNC the series victory of uh, the final series uh, of the regular season. I'm just going to say, um, and this was before the game that's being played right now, UNC has had five homers uh, in the two games against FSU, and 13 runs were allowed off them. Wow. Now, Jackson, I'm going to sort of extend this to you as you were a pitcher, but um, is there a difference in how you um, look at those pitches when um, there's more uh, players on, uh, on the bag? Because five homers on 13 runs, you're looking at maybe almost two to three in each homer. So is it, is it poor, um, is it poor management by the pitchers or is it something a little more? When you're pitching and you're thinking, okay, well, well, if the ball's going to be in play, you're not really thinking about homers or you're not thinking about home runs, but you're thinking, okay, well, if the ball's going to be in play, where do I want it? Um, if there's a man on third base with less than two outs, you're thinking, well, I don't want the ball elevated. I'd much rather have the ball on the ground when I'm trying to get a ground out here. I'm trying to get a ground ball here. Um, but, uh, to answer your question, when, whether there are runners on base or not, a pitcher or a pitching staff is not thinking, um, let's not give up a home run here. (laughs) That's just, you know, it's, it's, it's just not the way to think about the game, Mm -hmm. but it definitely hurts more. And, and UNC, have, have just been at the right place at the right time when it comes with the long ball. And it just happens to be when a lot of runners are on base. So kudos to them. And when you're talking about a one game situation, home runs more than maybe anything else is, is something that can blow a game open. And they're they're They have the ACC tournament starting next Tuesday. They'll have probably the regional coming up soon. When you're in one of those situations and Florida state last year went two games and done, they lost both of the games in the regional and Oxford last year and, and their season was done when your season is online one game and you're giving up the kind of home runs that this team is allowing. And even if the offense is, is really great, um, it, it's going to struggle uh, in saying that with the offense. I think that's, that's the one uh, bright spot that, that we should highlight. There's some youngsters that are doing incredibly well. Jaime Ferrer in his freshman season has come on very, very strong. Uh, you have James Tibbs, who has been a home run machine. Brock Mathis has come up with some big hits as well. Um, and then they've had some transfers that have come through. Jordan Carrion, I think, still has a little bit more left uh, of eligibility. He played well in, in his game against his former team in Gainesville this week. So, And if they can continue this where they're scoring four or five runs a game, um, maybe Messick gets it straightened out in in the regional or something like that. I think they should be uh, in decent shape. And saying that as they look ahead, uh, going into the week, according to USA Today, projections had Florida State hosting a regional as they 10 seed. There's 16 teams that host a regional, so 10 out of 16 
Uh, and in that regional, they had us mocked to play Auburn, Rutgers, and Fairfield. So, I, I mean, you, if they get into a situation like that, you're not playing Miami. You're not playing Louisville or UNC or Florida. You're playing teams that that aren't in this ACC and, and probably don't have the potent weapons that we've been used to seeing. So maybe to that end, um, they could get back on track, and, and certainly we'll see. But to get games in Tallahassee would be huge. Um, as we've seen with softball, they, they, they're great, at least one game into it. Um, and then as far as the ACC tournament goes, it starts on Tuesday, as I said, and with tiebreakers and everything else in the standings, they likely won't have anything higher than I think the six seed. Uh, they're going to have to win games no matter what. I think they're at 32 wins. Now they had 30 wins a season ago and they did not host a regional. So if they can pick up maybe one or two and, and get to 34 wins, maybe against a ranked team or two that would go a long way in the selection committee and in a story that is, is probably the biggest going in Tallahassee. But in saying that you, you turn over to the softball team and, and they put a hurting on uh, Howard and, and probably the, the worst way that you could do it, at least for, for their uh, perspective, they Florida state, the number two seed in the national tournament uh, coming in, they're the number three team in the RPI rankings, uh, they hosted the regional, they'll host the super regional as well in Tallahassee, but uh, the four teams that they're playing this weekend, number 30 in the RPI, Mississippi State, number 39 in USF, and Howard, who they just put a whooping on, uh, 202 in the country. RPI is based mainly on strength of schedule, so that would probably tend to explain why they are ranked so low. Um, but in playing the 202nd team in the country, there was the result um, that you would expect, which was a run rule uh, with a no hitter. So the game only went five innings, eight, nothing final score. Danielle Watson won her 17th game of the season, 17 and four throwing five, no hit innings. She only walked one through 57 pitches. So domination in the, the most extreme way. Uh, it was only a one, nothing game after three innings and uh, Howard was hanging around, but then in a three run fourth, and a four-run fifth uh, to walk it off. Chloe Culp drove in Edenfield uh, to send them to the winner's bracket. So I believe if they if they beat USF, who I think they are playing right now as we're recording this, but by Monday night you will know uh, the result of that game. They'll be headed, I believe, to the Super Regional, if I'm not mistaken. So in that game against Howard, a postseason record crowd of over 1,600. They saw a great game from their team. They didn't even have to start their best pitcher, um, and, and Sandra cock and, and they still had a no hitter. So, uh, everything's looking good on the softball diamond so far. Yeah. I think, um, the one thing I think Daniel Watson's going to be thinking about is how, um, she allowed just the one walk, uh, that close to being a perfect, like a perfect game, but still a no hitter is, is huge. And especially I think the happiest person in the world is probably Catherine and, you know, to have essentially pitcher number two come in and force a no hitter, uh, brings huge confidence to the team, especially on that pitching staff. Um, and Catherine gets the night off, which is could play a big role in today. Um, and if they win today, then it just sets up a much easier road. Um, so credit to Danielle for uh, putting together a good night. Uh, could make this weekend quick and painless, um, all things if all things work their way and if they play the way that we have seen throughout the season. Um, the thing that impressed me most was maybe um, Janai Kerr and Chloe Culp, who were able to hit balls. They were hitting in the play. And, um, but when they put them into play, you'd have batters, uh, in scoring position. So three of the eight runs actually came out on flyouts. So, and there was no home runs. So they really worked the field and really played, um, on a night where maybe even 
you know, they weren't having, um, they weren't juicing balls out of the park and into the parking lot, but uh, they worked themselves into many great situations where we able to capitalize. And that's just one of the maybe thousands of ways that uh, the softball team is able to just come out of nowhere and take a victory in any way. They can win on home runs. They can win purely on just playing in the playing in the field. And they did that um, against Howard. Um, USF had a decent game against Mississippi State, went 4-0. And uh, as you said, that USF game is going on right now. 6 nothing Knowles. I mean, this may date us a little bit depending on when you're listening to it, but you could be looking at another uh, run rule game uh, as they're in the, the winner's bracket there. So, And you were right, Jack, and you pointed that out on last week's show coming off the heels of an ACC conference tournament win that it wasn't necessarily always the long ball that they can go station to station. They can play the field. Um, they get a ton of hits. They do a great job of making contact. They'll even work a couple of walks here and there, but so many dynamic players up and down the lineup. Um, and that that's been making the difference. And it looks like uh, if this result holds, I mean, this would be an all time jinx, but it looks like they'll be headed uh, to the super regional, which will be in Tallahassee as well. So big things going on. <clears throat> hey, they're bad losers. What can we say? That is <laughs> <laughs> that is true. The best way to put it. Uh, just another note, uh, six players on this team made the all region. Uh, Sander Cock, Leonard, uh, Cheryl and Harding were all first team and they had a couple of second and third team all region as well. So uh, some of their players being honored as as they are uh, top two, maybe top three team in the country, depending on how you want to look at it. And they'll get another shot they were just a win away from winning at all a season ago, they'll have a chance to uh, hopefully avenge that. And uh, as we close out the show, we've got some NBA uh, basketball playoff basketball to talk about the first series, the Eastern conference finals, the Miami heat and Boston Celtics, as we're recording, they are tied one game apiece. There'll be uh, game three played in Boston by the time you hear this, but it's for now it's one, one uh, in game one, the Celtics in Miami were without Jalen Brown, defensive player of the year, center Al Horford, who, as Sebastian said a week ago, it looks like he's found the fountain of youth and he's playing out of his mind. They were both out in game one and they still had an incredibly dominant uh, first half. It was Jimmy Butler working against a backup defender uh, for Boston to, to claw their way back into that one. Uh, but then the Celtics did end up stealing home court in game two. And uh, with Boston, just the question I'd pose to you guys is this, like, what is it about this team that they're kind of the undisputed public favorite at this point to win it all? Well, uh, well, not to correct you, but it was, it was uh, Marcus Smart. Um, That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, I'll tell you what, this, this Celtics team, when you have the offensive uh I'm trying to think of the right word. Just the dynamic duo that is Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, along with someone like Al Horford, who can, you know, we saw against the Bucks, can give you 30. Uh, probably won't see that again, but, you know, someone like Al Horford who, who, can, who can shoot the long ball, uh, can post down low. He, he can give you 15, 17 a night. Uh, you have guys like, like, like Grant Williams who can go off uh, down low as well. Um, and then you have the defense. When you have Marcus Smart, you have Al Horford, you have Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, they're all great defenders. They're all great defenders. And this is just a team that is built for the playoffs because you have to be able to play great defense in the playoffs because the, the way that the game is officiated a little differently. It's a little more physical. But they also have the scoring capabilities uh, to go toe-to-toe with anybody. And we see off so often that that great defense turns into great offense 
especially in the way um, in which basketball moves now. It's so fast, so open, so free-flowing. Uh, it, it's hard, in my opinion, it's hard to not to not choose them. I, you look at a Heat team, you look like, you know, that's, that's more dependent on the free ball. Uh, you look at the Warriors, obviously, uh, who are married to the three-point shot. Um, it, it seems like the safest pick to pick the Celtics, and it just makes the most sense. Yeah. Um, for this series, I, this series seems a little unpredictable, but the trend I've noticed throughout both, both teams throughout the entirety of the year and that is um, with six minutes left around the third quarter, you could already potentially know the winner, which is a bit weird. So if the Heat keep it close, um, they will probably have two or huge, two or three huge runs full of Jimmy Butler dominating your man inside the three-point line, just dominating inside the paint, and everybody but the centers will make threes. In game one, the only non-center to make a three was Jimmy, who instead went 12 for nine, put up 41 points and nine boards. What the Celtics do is that if they build a sizable lead and they can and like they can and likely will bury you uh, with a deadly three ball. Uh, game two, 20 for 40, 50%. On those nights, if you're a Celtic and in the game for 10 plus minutes, you are more than likely to be in double digits and you will drain at least two threes, is, at least it's what it showed in game two. They have an arsenal of weapons that maybe only Vector from the first Despicable Me can compete with, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> But oh, if it's close, I think the heat will rise. And if the Celtics can put you on their heels, they you will be knocked out, no question. Yeah, and we, we <laughs> that was that was great with the vector. You know, Jack, next Halloween, I think you would be a great vector. Oh, I don't know what that means. That's probably not a good thing, but no, no, I just feel like you know, you you can get the orange and the white, you wear the helmet, it, it you get the glasses. I don't know. I, I think it, it would it would work well with both direction and magnitude. Exactly, oh, yeah. exactly. But uh, the biggest asterisk, not not necessarily those statistics are wrong, and um, I'm not disagreeing with you in any way, shape, or form. But uh, the biggest reason why Game One was not telling for me at all is because they were missing both Al Horford and Al Horford and Marcus Smart, mm. uh, two defensive centerpieces you know a guy like Kendrick Perkins um said that Al Horford is their best defender and maybe Al Horford's not the greatest uh, guy to quote but you know I think it's not a, it's not a terrible take uh, Al Horford is a great defender and Marcus Smart was a defensive player of the year so uh to have two of your possibly your biggest defensive pieces missing on game one in the finals, or excuse me, in the Eastern Conference finals uh, on, you know, on the road without having those pieces. Uh, I was surprised the Celtics were even up as much as they were until that third quarter. Um, so now that the games are back in Boston. Um, should be a great atmosphere. I've always wanted to go to a game in the garden. So it uh, we'll see tonight and we'll be able to talk about it next week. And uh, the, se- the series might might be over by then. Well, who knows? I disagree with that, but it, but it genuinely could. But we'll see. Anticipated well, to see that one. It's the more competitive out of the two. We've got about 30 seconds left. As you see here, my alarm going off. Um, just some final takes from you guys. 
Golden State is up 2-0 uh, against the Dallas Mavericks. They won both games at home. Dallas looked slow and outmatched in game one, but they played better. Luka came back in game two, but they blew a 19-point lead. What are we thinking about this series right now? Luka needs – he needs another – I'm sorry. He, he needs he another needs. superstar. He needs one more piece. He needs one more guy. Uh, defensively in the playoffs, if you can box him one on one man, it's so hard to, to compete when you're relying on one guy. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say that um, if Jalen Brun- or Jalen Brunson and Spencer Didwe are your guys that who are your uh, sidekick, that's not it's not exactly championship uh, material. Um, I just like that Luka Doncic has put up LeBron like numbers, and maybe if he was in, if he ever becomes like a LeBron type, if he's ever to that level, then maybe he could carry them through this series, and that's a big maybe. But um, I gave them a slim chance now, especially after blowing a lead that that badly, one of the worst. Um, one of the worst, um, comebacks or, um, I guess chokes, I don't think it's the right word, but we're going to go with choke, uh, the playoffs thus far, um, they had the game and they blew it. Um, Mavericks have made a habit of winning at home though. So if they're able to grab, if they're able to hold that, hold down and, uh, take the series, at least a game five at even, I think that they have a fighting chance. If golden state wins in Dallas, that should be a series over. I think series doesn't start until someone wins a road game. Yes, sir. Both interesting series to follow. We promised some hockey talk. So just real quickly, at time of recording, New York, the Rangers lost a couple of games of Carolina to the Hurricanes. They come back. Remember, they came back down 3-1 against the Penguins. So that's uh, nothing new for them being down in the series. And the Tampa Bay Lightning stole a couple of games down in Sunrise, taking the first two uh, from the higher-seeded Panthers, the President's Trophy, all that. They had a a last-second goal, I think, from Ross Colton in game two. And they have a chance at Emily in Tampa Bay. Uh, to complete the sweep. So that will be interesting to see if that comes to fruition. So that will do it for this edition uh, of Tomahawk Talk. I've been your host, William Haynes, our co-host, Jackson Bakich, our producer, as always, as Je- is Jack Oliaro. Uh, you have been listening to Tomahawk Talk on 89.7 WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State.